0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert, and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday, we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today is Third Wednesday Theology, and we are tackling chapter 20 of Bob Inks, The Wonderful Works of God called The Christian Calling.
1: Hey, did you realize that two weeks ago was our four hundredth episode of the Wednesday conversation?
2: That feels like a big milestone.
0: That's a h- huge milestone. If we were That's playing a lot baseball, of
2: conversations. If we were like playing baseball, I'd right now on second base, like just take the bag off and hold it up in the air, you know? Yeah. Four hundred home runs. Four hundredth episode. That's like eight years of
1: Wednesday conversations. Man. Seems that seems like a milestone. Because
0: you started in twenty fourteen.
1: I know. Wow. I, I in, just a that. <laughs> in a closet.
0: In a closet.
1: I mean, it was, no, we started, well, we started in the offices where we had my nice office and then
2: we moved to the closet after that. That's true. Remember? Lots of black curtains trying to deaden the sound. Trying to deaden the sound so it didn't echo so much. Hey, this chapter 20
1: of The Wonderful Works of God, by the way, what we do on Thursday, Third Wednesday Theology is talk our way through Herman Bovink's systematic theology called The Wonderful Works of God. If you're new to the podcast this is something we do on the third wednesday we're on chapter 20 of this book the title is the christian calling and when i first read that title in fact when we were texting back and forth about the chapter for this week i assumed based on the title it was like about uh you know our calling in the world or something like what we should be about in the world it's like oh the christian calling i guess is going to talk about like what what our vocation is in the world actually what it's about is soteriology this is the heart of, it's about, what does it mean to be called to faith in Christ? So this is actually kind of fun. It's, it's an important chapter because this is the heart, I think, of Reformed theology in terms of its experiential side. When we talk about why do, why do people tend to really love Reformed theology when they actually understand how it works in my own soul? Bobbing's getting into the heart of what does it mean that God has called you by externally by the gospel, that he's called you internally by his spirit, that you've been born again. What is repentance and faith? What does it mean to actually trust and believe in Christ? How is all of that the work of God and his sovereign goodness? That's what this chapter is about. And therefore, this is a good chapter and an important one. So were you kind of confused the first few pages? I was just like, man, I don't know where he's going here. I was like, oh, I see what he's doing. This is about effectual calling. This chapter is about effectual calling, basically. Yeah, yeah. So...
2: That's Which the, is kind of like part B to the gift of the Holy Spirit, the yes. chapter before. It's like, I got more to say about the how the Spirit draws you.
1: Makes sense why Herman put this chapter here. All right, let's just sort of talk our way through how he treats this subject. And then we're going to spend our time just sort of thinking about those, the heart of Reformed soteriology, which is calling, regeneration, faith, mm-hmm. repentance, all of those things that happen inside of us by the grace of God. He starts out by saying, hey, you know what we have to talk about? How word and spirit relate to each other. And what I love about Bovink, he's such a great modern theologian because he usually says, here's what some people do. Here's what other people do. Here's what you should do. Here's what what smart, (laughs) wise, biblical people do. So he says, um, some people regard the preaching of the word as adequate in itself and do injustice to the operation of the spirit. And then he talks about that for a while. Then he says, you know, the opposite mistake is, Um, to emphasize the spirit and ignore the word. And he says, you know, the challenge has always been to keep word and spirit in relationship to each other. And that's what the Reformed churches really did well. In fact, he points out, I thought this was a good critique of Lutheranism. So for all of you Lutherans who are reading, he says the Lutheran Reformed churches took different ways. The Lutherans. United word and spirit so completely as to run the risk of identifying them and to lose the distinction between them altogether. They even came to the point of enclosing the saving grace of the spirit in the word and to permit him entrance to man only through the word, which is funny if you've ever read Luther. And it's, you know, he's a man of his time and he's reacting against some really mm-hmm. bad errors in theology, but he is so about the word. It's just like, you know what, you, know what, you need the word. You need, yeah. the word. Yeah. you need the word preached to you. How does God work in your life through his word? You do get the sense that for Luther, it's all about the word and there's a, a little bit of a flattening there. But um, Bovink points out that the right understanding of word and spirit, which in his estimation is held by the sort of reformed tradition has to take into account the fact that um, God works through his word and by his spirit. And that though they always work together, they can't be confused with one another. There's a work that God does through the word, and there's a work that God does through the spirit. And
3: he he very richly sort of builds out each of those aspects of how God works. One of the things that I thought was a brilliant move is when he points out that The overemphasis on the spirit, which is kind of a mysticism, leads to rationalism. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting call. Very bovineky. Yeah, where there takes two things, you think, how are these things related? He points, he convinces you that they are related. Yeah, so they lead, they lead to the same place, which is just sort of the kind of autonomous internal working of yourself. Hmm. Is you kind of equate that with God? Just as rationalists, it's like my reasoning. I can reason to truth um, independently. Uh, the mysticism is sort of what my internal world is sort of equated with the voice of God. And those two things kind of, they, they dead end the, the same place, which is the self.
2: Yeah. He, been- also, he also brings in general revelation as just, hey, sometimes the Lord speaks that way as well.
1: Well, and I want to talk about, because what he does here is a very thoroughly reformed treatment of the word of God. And I think it's important for our understanding of natural law and of natural revelation. What he says is um, God in all that he does in the world makes use of his word as a means. So he begins by talking about how God created the world through his word. And he quotes all these scriptures about the fact that God's God sends his word forth and it does what he pleases. And so he basically says, Hey, there's a, there's a speech that there's a word of God, which goes out to the whole world. Um, That's what we call, natural revelation or general revelation, right? This sense that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Psalm 24. Um, so th- there's a word that's that God has spoken to the whole world. And then, and he, he, by the way, summarizes it this way. God speaks to man in nature and history, in reason and conscience, in blessings and judgments, in the leadings of life and the experiences of the soul, By means of this rich and powerful speech, God maintains in man the consciousness of his responsibility. So if you want to know what is Bavink put in the category of just God's general word to the world, it's those things, nature and history, reason and conscience, blessing and judgments, uh, leadings of life and experiences of the soul. And then he says, from that general testimony or speech of God, we should now distinguish this special word of God that comes to us in the scriptures The Holy Scripture, which is the word of special revelation, acknowledges the general revelation in nature and history, confirms it, and purges it of all false admixtures. This is very similar to what Calvin famously says in the Institutes, where he talks about the fact that God has spoken clearly in the world, but because we have bad eyesight, we can't see what he said, and so we need the spectacles of Scripture to bring everything into focus for us and so calvin sees the scriptures as basically a set of glasses that when we put them on we can see the world clearly as it actually is because in our sin we distort the world and we don't see it clearly and bavik is making the same move here he's saying god has revealed himself quite clearly in the created order but because of sin we twist what god has said and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness romans 1. And so God gives us his word in special revelation in scripture to help us see clearly what's there to be seen, but what we cannot see apart from God interpreting it for us. And this is, um, I don't know, Chris, this feels a little different. There are some trends in reformed theology that are sort of like radically
3: natural revelation doesn't count for anything. Yep,
1: Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Sort of the Bartian tradition almost.
3: Yeah. And that's one of the things with, um, Bavinck and Kuyper, kind of the neo-Calvinist movement, they had, a, I think, an appropriately high view of common grace Yes, and, and saw that common grace was working in some powerful ways. But, but what Bavinck does brilliantly here is he shows how scripture, like you were pointing out, how scripture kind of grabs that general revelation and then brings more clarity and color. So he doesn't pit the two against each other. As it can often be, or or kind of put one in the corner, but it says both, you know, they, they work in conjunction in beautiful ways. And I don't know. I think we could recapture some of that even today in the way that we theologize today. Too. I think
1: it's needed. Yeah, mm. um, because actually, what's happened in our stream, speaking, I guess narrowly, our our reformed evangelical Christian stream, which I realize isn't that is not the stream of every listener. So I just said our stream in a way that's sort of like makes every listener identify you Just with invite stream.
3: everybody in, invite everybody in.
1: But because, so Karl Barth back in the 1930s strongly emphasized the sort of um, uniqueness of special revelation in a way that was really needed to correct some of the errors of German higher criticism. Mm-hmm. But what's happened in the wake of Barth is everybody's been really afraid to say, wait, we can know something about God from natural revelation because Barth was kind of poo-pooing that. And so... In the Reformed circles, it's been, you know, you didn't want to say much. You kind of wanted to honor the critique Barth was making by by not saying too much about we could actually know something of God from the world around us. Mm. And so I think there is a need for us to rightly recover that healthy view of natural revelation that you see in Bob Bavink and Kuiper and others.
3: Yeah, another example, you know, as much as there's aspects of uh, Van Til that I respect, I think yes. more... Extreme versions of vantillian apologetics to kind of just want to crush common grace and natural revelation. Unbelievers yeah. misunderstand everything. Yeah, I can't know anything, so yeah. yeah. Um.
1: Okay, so if you ask as a listener, okay, but how does that work? Okay, great. There's general revelation. There's special revelation. Eh, build that out a little bit. Listen to how Bovink talks about these on page 393 in a way that I think actually really helps us understand the difference. He says, the heavens now still tell of God's glory in the same way that they did a thousand or several thousands of years ago. And despite all his development in civilization, man is still in his essence and nature, exactly what his most ancient predecessors were. So what he's saying is, When it comes to the general revelation, there's no new information. The the heavens have always existed. Uh, Humanity has been functionally the same. You know, people have always been able to look at the stars, at the world around them, and at their own selves, and have functionally always seen the same things. He says, special revelation, however, came into being along the historical way, in a centuries-long history, and has its midpoint in the historical person of Christ. According to God's plan, we can never come to know anything concerning historical events and persons, which are not always with us the way natural things are, but come and go and appear and disappear. We can't know about these historical events and persons except by means of the word, be it the spoken or the written word, and be it recorded in letters or in other signs. From the character of particular historical revelation, it accordingly follows that it must make use of the word. In order to make itself known from generation to generation, and from place to place, I found that so helpful in thinking about why do we need God's inscripturated Word? Well, it's because the gospel is a matter of history, and the only way we know history is because it's recorded for us in some way. That's different from how we know nature. We can you can go out and you know look at the trees and the sky and learn something of what nature has to say to us, because nature is always the same, whether you're standing in South Africa or South America or South Omaha, but the events of history, things that have happened along the timeline of history, the only way we can access them is if they're recorded for us in some way. And that, I found that very helpful to sort of think about the importance of inscripturated revelation. All right. So from that sort of understanding of revelation, um, he moves then into this idea of calling. So here, let's just give some big categories and then you guys can talk about whatever. You you can tell me what you want to talk about as far as the particulars, okay? So here are the big categories when it comes to salvation and the doctrine of salvation. You have, first of all, external calling and internal calling. Uh, external calling is the proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. It's the sense that God sends his word out into the world through preachers and through radio and through, you know, Bible translation. It's all all the ways that the gospel comes to us externally. That's the work of God's word. And then there's internal calling, which is the work of the spirit of God, um, which Bavink also calls illumination. Um, and I think um, that's a helpful way to think about uh, what, what is, how do we think about that internal calling? He says on page 402, scripture designates this influence of the Holy spirit in the internal calling by the name of revelation and he quotes that passage in Matthew where you know Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ and Jesus says flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my father in heaven and Jesus is acknowledging you you just received something you just named something that was revealed to you you didn't get it from looking at the world you got it from revelation and he goes on to write the revelation referred to in these contexts consists in other words of an internal illumination In the natural sphere, our eye is given light by the sun and in turn it then lightens the whole body. And he says that's basically how the work of the internal calling of the Holy Spirit works. It's it's God turning on the lights in your soul in a way that you see what is actually there. Just like you could be in a room, have a functioning eyeball and a book in front of you, but if there's no light in the room, you ain't gonna get any reading done, right? So there's real stuff there for you to see and there's real eyes for you to see it with, but there's no light, therefore you can't actually see what it says. And in the same way, as we think about what is the internal work of the spirit, the internal calling of the spirit, it's this turning on the lights in our souls in a way that causes us to see and respond to the external word that God has proclaimed.
2: Any and thoughts? also turns on my ears so that I can hear the word. Yeah, right. We don't just want to use Yeah, it. It's not just about eyes. It's about our whole being. Well, I'm just thing. saying that's, that's how I was thinking about it. Yep. I can hear the word as the spirit illuminates and turns on my listening ear. Here's a summary
1: Here's bovink's own summary of the doctrine of effectual calling. Quite in accordance with the Holy Scriptures, the Reformed Church confesses that when God carries out his good pleasure in the elect and works true repentance in them, he not only has the gospel externally preached to them and not only powerfully enlightens the mind through the Holy Spirit in order they may rightly understand, but he also penetrates To the inner man with the powerful operation of that same regenerating spirit. So he's basically saying there are sort of three works God is doing there's the external proclamation of the gospel, there's the enlightening of the mind by the Holy Spirit, and then there's regeneration, the powerful penetrating to the inner man by the operating of the spirit. And all of those things together work to bring us to saving faith. Any thoughts, Chris?
3: So many thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of the tensions that Bob Inc. addresses is how people do treat the external internal call and how those that, um, one of the critics of reform theology is that it seems as if, uh, reformed theology minimizes in some ways the external call uh, as if it's not equally given to all people or that it's uh, not as powerful to all people or that there's a, there's a less than factor, however you want to uh, frame it. And so talk about that. I think that that might be a good thread to pull on. And in some ways, e- even just for, for our listeners that aren't. with I like how I asked
1: you a question. You yeah. i turn around back on you. That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. You should should do do that was real gospel. Jesus. Like, yeah, seriously. You know?
3: What do you think? Who do you say that? Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to find the page where Bovink talks about that because I thought he had a good way of framing it. Um, But yeah, his, the basic, uh, the basic logic that he's working out is basically to say, look, um, the external calling really is a calling of God. Um, So as reformed people answer this objection, they generally want to point to, Hey, actually, Um, God does call every human being externally by the word of the gospel. God sincerely says in his word that all should come to him and he means it. Um, and, uh, he says, he says this, the rejection of the external calling Chris by a human being. Mm -hmm. So someone hearing the gospel and not trusting in Christ never takes place with impunity. Those who despise the gospel cannot appeal to their helplessness for they do not reject it because they are helpless. If that were so, they would appeal to the grace of God, which offers them salvation. But they reject the gospel rather because they feel strongly that they can save themselves and because they mean to be saved without the grace of God. Mm -hmm. That many called by the gospel do not come and do not repent is not the fault of the gospel. I love that line. It's like, hey, the fact that people don't repent is not the fault of the gospel, nor of the Christ offered them in the gospel, nor of the God who calls them by the gospel. The fault rather lies in those who are called of whom some being indifferent do not accept the word of life. So he wants to be clear that God's external calling, it's not like God, um, kind of sort of calls to some people, but then really calls yeah, to other yeah, people. Yeah, exactly, exactly. this external calling is from God and it's effective in, in what it intends to accomplish. And the fault, if you don't respond to it, does not lie in the fact that, you know, God held something back from you. Yeah, It lies in the fact that you have rejected your need for the grace of God. I like how he said, and I don't know if this is helpful, Chris, for every listener, but I think it was helpful for me. Um, if I really felt like I was helpless, what I would do is to call on the grace of God, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So his whole thing is the idea that like, well, you know, I guess God didn't give me what I need. You know, he didn't give me the internal calling. And so it must be something wrong with God that I didn't respond. Yeah. Yeah. He says, what defeats that objection is the fact that if you were actually helpless, what you would do is call on God for help. And the fact that you don't do that shows that your problem isn't helplessness. Your problem is pride, arrogance, yeah. hardheartedness, stubbornness, unrepentance. It's some, something in you that is unwilling to just say, here, am I a sinner who needs the grace yeah, of God?
3: Yeah. That's, I, I remember having a conversation with someone about this once and telling them, Hey, reform theology doesn't teach that there are those who want the grace of God, but don't get up. Oh, sorry. You're not elect. You don't get the grace of God. It's, to want the grace of God to throw yourself on the grace of God is uh, he turns no one away who comes to him, and so that that is actually a sign of the power of the gospel and the spirit at work in your life so uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't mean that there are going to be those left out who want the grace uh, it's and like as you pointed out, those who reject it and those who don 't experience it 's because of that that pride and I think it 's also helpful to to kind of go back to analogy you were using it 's not as if you know, we have like, like, a, there's different types of inability. There's sort of like physical inability. I'm blind. My eyes don't work. And then there's a moral inability. That's the issue here is not that, you know, uh, uh, that of physical inability, it's moral inability. It's, I don't want this. Uh, and, and that is what keeps us from the gospel rather than this. I want this, but I can't believe enough or, or whatever it may be. You know, however you want to uh, phrase that it's, it's a genuine, true, pride, rejection based on, you know, moral grounds, rebellion. Well, and Bavink,
1: like most good Reformed theologians, pushes that back to its, its sort of final premise where he, he basically says, okay, given that there are people who respond to the gospel and people who don't respond to the gospel, you ultimately have two options. Either that difference is due to some ability in the person, yeah, yep. or it's due to the sovereign choice and grace of God. If it's due to the ability in the person, then some people are better than others, or some people are more deserving of grace than others, or some people are smarter than others. I mean, the the only thing you can do if you're going to say, hey, ultimately what makes some people respond to the gospel and some not respond is, you know, some people, it's in the person. There's a difference in the person in terms of their willingness to respond or whatever. Then what you have are two classes of people. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there's one group of persons called sinners and that ultimately this this roots itself in this sort of mystery of of the grace and providence yeah. of God. And yeah. Bobbink is very fine as our most reformed theologians just leaning back into that and saying, and you know what? That we can't answer all the yeah. questions that yeah, exist exactly. about that. What we do know from the light that scripture gives us is the reality that at the end of the day, we we rest in the sovereign goodness and grace of God. And that difference has to do with what God seems to be working out in history, uh, in in his purposes throughout history, rather than in individual merit or goodness in the part of a particular human being. Yeah. And that's,
3: that's the challenge. I mean, if, if we, if we believe this, that the gospel goes out truly and sincerely from God to all people and that all people, because we are sinners, we reject the gospel apart from the grace of God wrestle through that. But you are like, you just pointed out the end of the day, you're left with either this is determined by me or this is determined by the grace of God. And I think for, for those of us that are, are believers, you know, (laughs) where do you want to sort of land there? And, and, and also what is, what does scripture hold out? I mean, let's not just say, you know, what sounds better and what's sort of emotionally more satisfactory, but, but what does scripture hold out? And it's, it's like, I don't think you get very far, especially in the new Testament without this sense, I mean, no old Testament, both this sense that this is radically the grace of God. Without the grace of God, where none of us are going to accept this and receive this from from start to finish, what what initiates our response is the is the grace of God the word of God the spirit of God so I think you, you what, what you hit on Bob I think it really is the crux of the matter is is this a matter of the sovereign grace of God or is this a matter of human choice and free will and just where that that leads us I think is a less than gospel
1: yes I think an interesting um Bavink brings some deep nuance to this whole conversation. One of the interesting points he makes is that just like we talked about with natural revelation and then special revelation, right? That we, God has given us clear, I mean, Romans 1 tells us this, right? God has uh, revealed himself clearly in what has been made, but we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's the problem. The problem isn't that God hasn't made himself known. The problem is we suppress the truth and don't want to know him. Bavink says in a similar way, in carrying out the counsel of redemption, God follows the line which he himself in the work of creation and providence has drawn. So I like I like that way of thinking or that way of phrasing it because what it says is when God works out redemption, he's just following the outline he's given in creation. You know, he's not doing something different than creation, he's following the line that in creation and providence he has
2: drawn. He's not changing the game. Right. He's not changing the rules.
1: Here's here's what he says right after that. Just as in Zacchaeus, he effected the desire to see Jesus, Luke 19.3, and just as he brought about responsiveness in the multitude who heard Peter, Acts 2.37, so he cares and governs his own in such a way that they are prepared for the hour in which he glorifies his grace in them. And he himself conducts them by his almighty hand to that time. So redemption and creation are sort of always working in tandem with one another. God always redeeming us in line with how he created us to be in the first place, rather than sort of like doing some jujitsu in the middle of things. that's unexpected and we didn't see it coming. All right, let's talk about saving faith. This is a long chapter. He goes from calling to talk about faith and repentance. And I think we'll, Uh, Land the plane here, talking briefly about what saving faith is and what repentance is. Page 409. Faith, generally speaking, is the acceptance of a testimony. We believe something when we have not ourselves seen it, but are assured of it because some other reliable person has told us. Um, The basic meaning of the word retains when it's transferred to the religious sphere. So he's saying there's a a way in which faith just means what it means, you know, and when anyone says it. However, um, the word faith specifically designated in the Holy Scriptures um, is receiving the gospel as the gospel. And what I love that he does here is he says, saving faith is about receiving Christ, not just receiving the word about Christ. He says, to believe is to accept Christ, not simply the testimony concerning him. And I think that's the essence of Bavin gets to the heart of it when he says, hey, th- what this is really about is is a personal receiving of Christ and who he is and all his benefits, not just the believing of the words that are said about him. And that is a powerful difference. I, I think it's a, um, a simple difference, but really powerful for what it means for what you know, what does it mean to come to Christ? It doesn't mean just uh, accepting the words that a preacher says about him. It means accepting him
2: yeah, and the, all of his. An emphasis on the person. Yeah and not necessarily uh, the entire narrative.
1: Right. Well, including the entire narrative, but going beyond that to rest in the person. I'm trying to find this. um, Oh, here we go. The knowledge, which is peculiar to saving faith, is of a special kind. It is not purely theoretical. The knowledge of faith is a knowledge of the heart rather than of the head, a knowledge with a personal, profound, soul-absorbing concern. For it it pertains to something in which the self in its inmost essence is concerned. Something in which my existence, my life, my soul, my salvation is involved. Faith is an approbation and an acceptance, therefore, and a knowledge of a testimony coming to a person. But it is an acceptance of that testimony in its application to oneself. A receiving of the word of the preaching of God, not as a human word, but as the word of God, it is an appropriation by the self of the gospel as a message which God sends to me personally. And that, if you think about um, how some of the old catechisms talk about faith, there's I think it's the Heidelberg that that asks the question, "What is true faith?" And the answer is not just a general knowledge that God sent Jesus to die for sin, but a sense that Christ is my Savior and that He's died for my sins. It's the the personalizing the staking my life on that reality that is the essence of saving faith
3: and as Bavink does brilliantly kind of captures both ends of this where it's more than just like you're saying more than just a sort of intellectual assent to the content of the word it's an actual taking hold of a person it's there's the experiential side and yet that who are taking hold of and the content that we, we are faith is being put in is grounded in the word. We're not just inventing Christ on our, our own. And so there is this sense of what the faith that I have, the experience that I have is given as objective truth in the word. And so I'm responding to something real, not something that I may have made up, but yet it's not just dry dogma and facts. It is actually a person and an experience. And so I, yeah, I think what you read there, I think just captures both and the bookends of, of that and what Bovink has been trying to um, drive home this whole chapter. All right. Last thing
1: I want to bring out from this chapter is Bovink's definition of repentance, because I think it's so crucial. Um, the point he wants to make is simply this repentance does not come out of the old man, but of the new man. It assumes a saving faith, And is the fruit of such faith. It is a grief which God wills and which God works and its bearings are toward God. When the lost son comes to his senses and concludes to return home, he says, I will arise and go to my father. He takes the name of father upon his lips, even though he is still far from him. He dares to go to the father and to confess his sins before his faith, his face, because in the depths of his heart, he believes that the father is his father. We would not dare to turn around towards God if we did not trust inwardly in our souls through the Holy Spirit that as a father, he will accept our confession of sins and forgive us. True repentance stands in inseparable connection with true saving faith. This Bavik here is saying something that I first found in Fleming Rutledge's book on the crucifixion that changed how I preach. And it only happened like two years ago. I think I read it for our staff team, maybe at Easter a couple of years ago. What Fleming Rutledge pointed out is this exact reality that actually when we're trying to get people to turn from sin, what we need to give them is the gospel, not law.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that repentance is a, I'm only going to turn from sin when I see that what Christ offers me is a welcome and forgiveness and that the father welcomes me to turn back to him. I can't repent before I have faith. Repentance is itself an act of faith. I have to see the beauty of what Christ gives me and offers me, which is the motive for coming back to the father. To, to The way Bavik puts it is great. It's just like, I dare to go to the father and confess my sins because in the depth of my heart, I believe that the father is my father. That's, that's the only way I'm going to go to God in confession. I'm not going to go to God in repentance if I feel like God's probably, you know, gonna smack me on the wrist or you know cast me off it's it's only an apprehension of god as father that really draws me to real and true repentance and so bovink here is concerned to keep repentance and faith together instead of seeing them as separate acts and some some traditions in christianity see it as like you know does repentance precede faith or does faith precede repentance you know how do these things work together which one do we have to do before the other some preachers you hear You need to repent of all your sins and then you can come to Jesus. And some preachers say, you know, just come to Jesus and don't worry about repentance. And Bavik is saying, faith and repentance are, they cohere together. You can't repent without a faith in God as your father. And you can't really have faith in God as your father unless you're willing to come to him and turn to him.
2: And pastorally, what's beautiful about that is it's not just the right thing to do. It's the more beautiful way to go through life with God. Yeah. Relationally speaking, the father wants to be with you. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. All right.
1: So I think we'll leave it there for in, certain in terms of the podcast, just for summarizing. I know we've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about effectual calling. We've talked about regeneration, conversion, faith, repentance. Um, this chapter is really the heart of reformed doctrine and soteriology. And what a lot of people, what draws a lot of people to a reformed understanding of the faith is when they start thinking about their own conversion and start wrestling through, why did I come, why did, why did I come to faith in the first place? And when you really start asking that question and wrestling with why you know, what got me here? Um, it is really powerful to realize that what got me here is the external call of the gospel, the inner illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, God's grace coming to me when I didn't deserve it and awakening me to faith and repentance. And all of this being done for the glory of God out of his love for his people because of the good work of Christ. Um, this is, it, it sort of changes how you tell your testimony. You can always tell somebody that has come to a good grasp of gospel theology because their testimony isn't, you know, I i, I was so smart that I trusted in Jesus, you know, <laughs> but their testimony is, here's, wh- here's where I was when the grace of God met me, or here's how God drew me to himself. And it's a rich and powerful um, thing to grab hold of as we understand how the scriptures talk to us about what it means to be called to faith in Christ. And so I will leave you with where Bovink leaves us at the end of this chapter, which he's building again on the Heidelberg Catechism here, um, when it speaks of the dying of the old man and the coming to life of the new man. He asks, what is the dying of the old man? It is a hearty sorrow. That we have by our sins provoked God's wrath and in which we more and more hate those sins and flee from them. And what is the rising of the new man? It is hearty joy in God through Christ and a desire and love for living in all good works for God's sake.
0: The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.